Welcome to Riverbend Church's podcast, and thanks for listening. Riverbend is a church in Hernando, Mississippi, that is focused on our calling to restore the community around us. For more information, visit rbhernando.church. We hope you enjoy the message. We are in the midst of a series that uh, we have titled, Who's Your One? And uh, in this series, I am walking through a number of conversations individual conversations between Jesus and one other, possibly a crowd as we see the beginning of this conversation that we're going to look at today, but tying in spiritual conversations and the challenge, the encouragement for us to be speaking with those around us. Last Sunday, I asked you who were here to um, take the sheet of paper that was in the seat back in front of you and to write down a name, one name of an individual that you knew was far from God. You knew was not walking with God. Maybe he or she didn't know God or maybe he or she who knew God or claimed to know God were not living their lives in that way. And um, you turned in a number of names. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, I handed out a sheet that looked like this, and there are four columns of names on the sheet, all that you and I named, all that you and I stated, hey, I'm praying for these folks. I'm praying for these individuals and for God to allow me to have an opportunity to start conversation. I told you about three people that um, I was praying for, and this week I had the opportunity to begin a conversation with two of those three, and I look forward to continuing those conversations with neighbors, friends, acquaintances, um, and I ask that you would continue to pray. Um, If you have a copy of God's Word, we're in John's Gospel, John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Some of your texts might say that it is John chapter 7, verse 53. And I want us to look at this conversation. The woman caught in adultery. The woman caught in adultery. As I read this passage, I want you to kind of get your bearings, so to speak, get our bearings, so to speak, and and understand this, that the conversation doesn't start between Jesus and the woman. The conversation starts between the Pharisees and scribes and Jesus. And Jesus is speaking with a whole crowd, and they just come in and abruptly bring this woman and this conversation to the surface. So uh, it is recorded this way in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 1. They went each to his own house, but Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, 
This woman has been, has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This was said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and, and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Heavenly Father, as we uh, take a few moments and focus in on this conversation, Father, would you be championed from this place today? When we leave here, might we have a clearer picture of you, Lord. When we leave here, Father, might we hold higher your word. Might we hold closer you, Jesus, who bled and died for us. Father, I pray that we know more than any other time, clearly, that you came to seek and save the lost. So Father, these names that we have written down, these names that, that we have lifted up to you, stating that we ask for opportunities, Father, we ask that you would work in their lives, the situations and the circumstances that you take all of us through, this thing called life. Father, our, our eyes spiritually, our minds would understand more clearly, see more clearly who you are and how much you love us. I ask all of this in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at this section of John's Gospel, um, I, I need us to, to kind of put on our thinking hat for a moment. And I, and I need you to look at your copy of God's Word. And I don't know how you read Scripture, not with you when you open God's Word and when you turn on the computer or you flip open the pages, but I need you to, to kind of think about this passage in front of us. 
The first point this morning is this, that the context of the moment recorded is needed for you and me to understand the moment itself. The context of this moment or of the setting that is recorded is needed for us to understand this moment. And it begins with this paragraph in John's Gospel. At the beginning of the paragraph, there are two brackets. At the end of the paragraph, there are two brackets. And those brackets mean something. And you and I, as we open our copy of God's Word, I don't know how often you look at, whether it's a footnote, a superscript, or a subscript, go down to the bottom and and actually see this. And even in my copy of God's Word in front of me, it states that the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7 verse 53 through John chapter 8 verse 11. You're like, well, why are we looking at it today if that's the case? Well, let's talk about it for a second. Because ultimately, I get to stand up here and I get to proclaim God's Word to you about 30 minutes or 45 minutes, or an hour and 15 minutes. No. Uh, but I get to speak to you about once a week. Don't start the clock, David. I, I do. I get to speak to you about once a week. But you and I have the opportunity to spend time in God's Word, and you and I are encouraged to spend time in God's Word ongoing, on a daily basis. And so one of the things that I seek to do as I stand here is to get you to understand, hey, here's how you read God's Word. And let's just look at it and allow it to speak to us. And if that is the case, and it is, you and I need to think through this paragraph. Two brackets with the heading, the earliest manuscripts don't include this paragraph. So let's talk. How, how, did, how did we get manuscripts? How did we get copies of God's Word? How did God's Word go from, from Galilee to Hernando? Because the guys in this conversation, the, the guys and the ladies that were in this setting in Israel, they, they couldn't go down to FedEx Kinko's. They couldn't go to Office Depot and say, hey, I need five copies of God's Word. They couldn't go to Lifeway and get, oh, wait, we can't either. They closed the stores. They, they couldn't go. They, they couldn't go and just down to the store and buy a copy of God's Word. So how did they get different copies? How did they hear God's Word? They, they came in groups. They went to to the church, they went to the synagogue, and they heard men read God's Word. And how they got multiple copies of that Word is one person would come with their copy, and they would sit in a room with scribes, with a group of men who would sit around, and as they read the Word, as they read verse after verse, very Clearly, specifically, those scribes would write down the Word. And they would go from chapter 1, verse 1, and they would go through that book. And then they would sit and they would record another book and another book. Johann Gutenberg, 
born in the late 1400s, invented the printing press, the early 1500s. And no longer was Scripture copied manuscript after manuscript, but it went through a printing press to how we get our copies today. So the earliest copies, the the earliest manuscripts did not include this paragraph. So maybe you are Googling right now, hopefully not, but maybe you are thinking about, all right, well, how early did we have this paragraph in the copy, in the manuscript? Well, the earliest is about 330, 350, possibly 400 A.D., which you and I need to understand that John wrote this probably about 80 A.D. Some of his disciples, John's disciples, were um, around him as he wrote this, and they were in different cities. John became the pastor at Ephesus, and around Ephesus there in Asia Minor, Turkey today, there is a city called Hierapolis. One of the guys in Hierapolis who became the bishop of Hierapolis was a guy by the name of Papias, P-A-P-I-A-S. And he records this story. He records this episode at about 90 to 100 A.D. And it is placed in John's Gospel in between the end of chapter 7 and the beginning chapter 8, for us. And so the question then goes, Brian, why are you preaching from this one? For you and for me to understand that we need to not just say, hey, chapter 8 verse 1 is definitive, chapter 8 verse 1 is here, so let's just read through it. But we need to understand what is in front of us because there is a genre of writing, of literature right here in front of us, and it reads differently if it's poetry, if it's narrative, if it's a, if it's a letter, an epistle, if it's, prophet, if it's prophecy, if it is a prayer, if it's some lamentation. You and I need to understand this and we need to wrestle with it to understand what the author is trying to get across. So for us to understand this, the context of this setting that is recorded for us is needed for you and for me to understand the moment or the conversation that is about to be had. So a question. Maybe you have. Maybe you have for me. Well, Brian, do you believe that it is uh, God's Word? Brian, do we just need to Start there with those two brackets and close the two brackets at the end of chapter 8, verse 11, and start and say, hey, that one's gone. Another passage of Scripture that I am reminded of a story, W.A. Criswell, the uh, pastor of First Baptist Dallas for numerous years, decades, um, was known for this. He was known for preaching through the Scripture. And he started in Genesis chapter 1, and he worked his way all the way through Revelation. And it was, you finish Genesis, guess what? The next Sunday, we were starting Exodus. And he came to the 
passage in Mark's gospel. If you've got a copy, you can flip over to Mark chapter 16. And at the end of chapter 15, the first part of chapter 16, there are a number of verses. And he got to that spot one Sunday and he took his Bible, stood up on the stage, took his Bible, ripped the page out after chapter 16, verse 6 or 7, and said, that's all of it. I'm not going to do that this morning, just to let you know. One, I like my Bible that I just got two weeks ago for my birthday, so I'm not going to do that. But it is something that you and I need to look at. And so in looking at this passage, trying to answer that question and others, let me state it this way. There are questions as to if this needs to be in John's Gospel. There are scholars who believe that Genesis through Revelation is God's Word. There are no errors in it whatsoever. And there are scholars who agree that John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 needs to be there. And there are those that say, nope, John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 doesn't need to be there. It's not canonical Scripture. And both sections or both groups of those men and women who are scholars on God's Word would say, hey, this is God's Word. There are no errors in it. Yet we disagree on if that passage needs to be here. And so as I have looked through it and as I have studied it and as I have prayed over it, my question about the passage has come to this. Does it teach something that is contrary to the rest of Scripture? If it teaches something contrary to the rest of Jesus' life, or it teaches something that is contrary to His teachings, then by all means, we need to just get rid of those 11 or 12 verses. And we need to move on. It doesn't need to be there. But as I read through it, and as we will walk through it in these few moments this morning, I believe that it doesn't teach anything opposed to what Christ teaches or speaks of or lives out in other places. I believe it actually builds on His arguments of how you and I are to live and builds on His arguments of who He is. We'll get there in just a moment. So if we understand there are some questions, then let's now put on that thinking cap and keep that thinking cap on as we walk through it and see the picture of Jesus and see the question of how you and I are to live out our days today. He ate with, he walked with, he talked with sinners. The three plus years of Jesus' public ministry were filled with him eating in the homes of sinners, walking down the road with sinners, talking in conversation after conversation with sinners. And this is no different. The woman here is a sinner. When she is thrown into the middle of the ring, so to speak, she does not start crying out, that I didn't do this. Nowhere does she state, hey, 
I was not caught in this situation. She stands accused. And she accepts what is coming her way. The second point about this moment and this conversation is not only do we need to know the setting to understand it, but the moment is all about who is judge over sin. Look there in verse 2 down through verse 8. states this, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. So in the evening times he would leave Jerusalem. This is toward the end of his ministry and he is staying there in Jerusalem. But in the evening he would leave the city and he would go spend the night in a home and then he would come back to the city He would proclaim from the temple and teach from the temple each and every morning and every day. So early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came with him. So there's a huge crowd to hear him speak and he sat down and taught them. Today, you and I come to a room like you have this morning and you see someone stand up and proclaim the word of God in that day in that culture in that setting the teacher would sit and read sit and teach and so he sat down and he taught them the scribes and the Pharisees burst in the midst there in verse 3 and they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery placing her in the midst they said to him teacher This woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. That's what the Greek reads. The law of Moses commands us to stone a woman like this. What do you say? Think about that for a second. You're here to hear Jesus teach. And all of a sudden... Bursting through the side of the crowd is a group of Pharisees, a group of religious men, dragging a woman, throwing her in the midst. Now, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is uh, if this is a first century brothel that they're just looking in on. I don't know if this is a first century gentleman's club, so to speak. How she was caught in the very act by these men. If you look in Exodus and you look in Leviticus, Moses' law states that if this does occur, both the man and the woman are to be stoned. Where's the man? The culture and the day that you and I find ourselves in. Whether it's Me Too movement continuing to see a male dominance being championed. Might you and I learn from this passage as well that if the woman is guilty of this sin, then the man that she was with is to be guilty as well. The conversation begins with the Pharisees and we quickly see that it really isn't about the woman. It really isn't even about the situation that she might have been caught in or was not caught in. The whole reason behind this moment is that they are seeking to catch Jesus in a trap. 
And the culture that you and I live in is doing just the same. They sought to catch him missing his words. They sought to catch him saying something different than he had spoken before, acting in a way, living in a way that was different than how he had already stated who he was and what he was all about. It was an attempt to entrap Jesus again. And look how he responds. It is amazing how he responds. You and I need to understand this. We know this, but we need to understand this. This is not Jesus' first rodeo, right? It's not the first time he'd ever been up against a, a, a person or a, a situation that was trying to entrap him. Nope. He knew it. Before he entered into this world, he knew that there was an enemy. He knew that that enemy, all that enemy wanted to do was stop the mission that he was on. And so every moment, every day, Jesus was aware of the situation. And look what he does. They throw her in the midst of the circle, so to speak. Verse 6 says they did this or they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Period. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus doesn't say, hey, um, yeah, I'm teaching here. Can we do this a little later? Jesus doesn't say, um, guys, that's not what we're teaching on today. We're doing something else. Nope. In the midst of this, as they throw him and they bring this charge up against him, Jesus just puts some distance and he bends down and he just starts writing in the dirt. Maybe he's writing to think how he's going to respond. Some say that he's writing the names of those who are bringing this woman in front of him. Others state that he's writing not only their names, but he's writing their sin out. Some that I read this week state that, no, he's writing Leviticus chapter um, 9, he's writing Exodus chapter 19, and he's writing Exodus chapter um, 21 down, which all state different um, moments or verses on adultery, verses on sin. It's not recorded what he's writing down, it's just that he bent down and he started writing. And after a moment of him scribbling in the soil, he states these words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Moses' law says stoner and the man, if this is true. Not being entrapped by this, Jesus does not say, hey, Moses got it wrong. Nor does he pick up the stone and start throwing it at her and holding the coats of those who might be throwing it at her. His statement is bold. His statement is for everyone in the crowd, not just the scribes and Pharisees who brought the woman in front, but for every single man, woman, boy, and girl in attendance. He who 
has not sinned. He who has no sin among you, let that person be the first to throw a stone. Not even looking up, he bends back down and starts writing again in the dirt. And verse 8, verse 7 and 8 of the passage states that one by one, the oldest to the youngest of those accusing the woman start stepping away. What do we do with a conversation like that? A couple of things I believe that you and I can glean from this passage just on the confrontation of the conversation. The subject matter that is in front of Jesus at this moment is a tough subject for Him to speak on. And you and I will have tough subjects to speak on for those around us that we come in contact with that know that we are believers. Not every conversation is going to be an easy one. So what do you and I do? Number one, get your wits. Maybe you need to put some distance and say, you know what, that's an interesting thought that you bring up. Interesting thought that you bring up. I'm not trying to mislead you. I'm not trying to cram things down your throat. Let me think on that. And I promise I'll get back with you. And if you say that, think on it and get back with them. That's an interesting thought. That's an interesting subject. That's an interesting line of questioning that you have. I haven't looked at it that way. I haven't thought of it that way. Before I misspeak, let me think about it. Jesus distanced himself by bending down and just writing in the dirt. Jesus never spoke specifically about the accusation. He just stated, hey, you're so willing to throw stones at this woman. You're so willing to entrap me. He who's without sin in our midst, let him be the first one to throw a stone. Aren't you so thankful? Just think about it for a second. This is not time for you to just blab about your sin in public, okay? You just keep that to yourself. But I want you to think about the worst sin that you have committed. Aren't you glad when you committed that sin, Jesus didn't pick up a stone and stone you? Maybe you committed that sin twice. Aren't you glad that second time you committed that sin, you were thankful the first time that you committed that sin that he didn't pick up a stone and stone you. But the second time you committed the sin, he didn't stone you. Thirteenth time. Forty-seventh time. 589th time. If this passage, youth, if this passage, adults, teaches us anything about Jesus, it teaches us that He is one who seeks and saves the lost. He came for you. He came for sinners just like you and just like me. He desires for you, a great sinner, to know Him. No matter if it's been one time that you sinned that great sin 
are 177,412 times that you sinned that great sin or even more. He loves you and wants you to know Him because He seeks and saves the lost. Luke recorded it this way in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Excuse me, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said to him, speaking to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As those men walked away from the woman, a hush comes over the crowd. It's just Jesus and the woman in the middle now. Put yourself for a second in the spot of the woman. I don't know if she knows who she's standing in front of or not. You and I know who she's standing in front of. Jesus has just stated, hey, if we're going to stone somebody, let the person who has no sin pick up the stone and throw it first. He's the only one in the crowd. He's the only one in all creation that could do it. He's the only one in all creation that could pick up a stone for you and me too. Under those rules. He who is without sin, let him be the first one to throw the stone. Yet the conversation begins. It's a short one. The conversation begins there in verse 9 when They heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, his focus is now on her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go And from now on, sin no more. The New International Version translated this way, and I I think they are spot on as they translate it this way. Go and leave your life of sin. D.A. Carson wrote in his commentary this statement, and I have it as a quote for us on two slides. The confidence and personal absoluteness of Jesus' words not only call to mind that Jesus came not to condemn but to save. He states John chapter 3, verse 17, and John chapter 12, verse 47. Both of those state that. And he goes on, he says, but prompts us to remember the synoptic accounts that assign Jesus, like God Himself, the right to forgive. Synoptic accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. And in that, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1-8, through 8, you see that, that Jesus, like God, has the right to forgive sin. Multiple accounts through those three Gospels. The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. You want to tweet something? 
there is a quote. Every single one of us have been shown mercy. Paul wrote it this way in Romans, that it's your kindness, Lord. It's your mercy, Lord, that leads us to salvation. It's not somebody standing over you, beating you with, here's God's Word, know it, live it. No, it's the kindness that God shows you on a daily basis. He allows you to expand your lungs. He then allows you to contract your lungs. And second after second, sir, ma'am, youth, adult, that mercy has been shown to draw you to Him. Because He is here to seek and save you. And He died to purchase you with His spotless, sinless blood. And three days later, He arose and lives forevermore that you and I too might live. So young adult, seasoned adult, Child, youth, lady, man, please know that this Jesus loves you. This Jesus died for you. This Jesus acts the same way to you as He does this woman. Seeking to bring salvation to you. But also understand this. That even in this moment, you and I might be shown mercy. It does not mean that judgment is not coming. Judgment is coming. For this time, it has been held back by the kindness of God, but it is coming. It has been held back so that you too might have forgiveness. You too can be freed from the chains of sin, from the chains of addiction, from the struggles and from fear. He seeks to save the lost, the hurting, the cast out, the needy. So how will you respond to Him? How will you respond today hearing how much He loves you? Hearing all that He's done for you. How will you respond? For He is the only one who can bring hope. He is the only one who can bring peace. He is the only one who can bring rest. He is the only one who can bring salvation. For every other Savior might be willing to save, but he or she is unable to save. He is the only one who is willing, and He showed that willingness by His actions, And He also showed His ability by those actions. I don't know where you are in the journey. Some of you are questioning. He's big enough to answer those questions. Some of you have walked. You've walked in the door and you said, hey, I believe. But life's tough. Keep walking. Some of us in the room have been walking this journey for decades. For decades. Are you further along than you were a decade ago? I hope so. For we're called to be that. Ten years from now, Lord willing, 
will we say that we're further along then than we are now? If so, how will we know? You just hoping it? Are you putting some steps in place to say, hey, I was challenged this morning by one of our members as he spoke this morning right down the street to have a group of guys challenging, accountability, encouraging. I'm thankful for that. May I challenge you with the same? Don't do it alone. He made you for community. Join that. And let's walk. Heavenly Father, we come this morning. God, we come understanding that the actions that you have done, the conversation that you had with this woman, the conversation that you had with the Pharisees and the scribes. God, may we, may we be pointed back to you. Pointed back to your words, Jesus. That you have come to seek and save the lost. That you, the one who is without sin, has not cast the stone our way. But you have shown grace and forgiveness. Mercy. Even for us to this very moment. God, seeing that, I pray that I, just as Carson wrote, I pray that I, receiving that mercy, would live a life of purity from this point forward. For you have broken the bondage of sin and the chains that I was wrapped in. That we, sons and daughters of yours, have been wrapped in and locked to. You broke those chains. So might we live different. The invitation is open for you this morning, sir, ma'am. It's open for us. Right where we're sitting, Why don't you respond back to Him this morning just thanking Him for the mercy He has shown. For those in the room that don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, the invitation for you is there as well. He has shown over and over and over again, He has shown afresh and anew this morning in your presence what He's about. He is seeking and saving the lost and He loves you. Would you see that this morning and would you respond? I'll be up front. The altar is always open for you to come and pray. But may you and I respond back to our Father. May you and I respond back to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As Alex and the team lead us, song of response, of invitation is your call.
to respond. Alex? You have been listening to the latest message from Riverbend Church. We hope you enjoyed it. Live simple.